Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast with Pastor Joseph Gibson at Cranberry Community Church. We hope God speaks to your heart through today's message. We are beginning a new series today that I am very excited about. I've been wanting to do this series for a long time, uh, and I encourage you to take notes. We have free notebooks on the back table. So if you don't have one of those notebooks and you would like one, if you'll raise your hand, uh, somebody will put one of those in your hand. But today, I'm just warning you, is going to be information overload. So there's a lot today that I'm going to throw at you. Uh, like I said, that's why it would be great for you to take notes um, uh, specifically today. And I actually had to trim this down a lot just to fit everything in. So I may have to extend this series before it's over with. But uh, uh, we're looking today, we're, we're beginning to look at the subject of apologetics. That's the defense of the Christian faith. So uh, Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, he said, In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. And then he said, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared to give a reason, to give an answer for the reason for your hope. Uh, he said, do this with gentleness and with respect. Now, when Peter wrote this letter, Greg, can you turn me up just a little bit? Um, when Peter wrote this letter, uh, the atmosphere that he was facing, it's not unlike what we have in our culture today. Uh, they were, uh, he was living in an era of hostility towards the Christian church. They weren't in an era yet of full-on persecution, but they, they soon would be under the Roman Emperor Nero. So uh, it was this time of hostility towards Christians that Peter wrote to the church, uh, and he said, always be prepared to give an answer for the reason behind your faith. Don't choose to have an uninformed faith and just say, well, I have faith that it's true. Peter said that's not necessary. You can actually understand the logic and the reasoning behind your faith. And I often say that, that uh, the, the core of Christianity is faith, but it's not a blind faith. There is overwhelming evidence in support of the Christian faith, and that's what we're looking at in this series. We're going to look at things like faith and science, faith and archaeology, the difficult questions that we face uh, in our faith, but the purpose of this series is twofold. Uh, it, it's first to strengthen your own faith, and second, and extremely important, it's to, to empower you to more confidently share your faith. Uh, one of the reasons that Christians cite for not sharing their faith with others uh, is that we don't have all of the answers. Uh, newsflash, you'll never have all of the answers, uh, but we're going to look at some of the answers to the arguments against the Christian faith, how we can respond to those. So we're going to look at some uh, scripture in this series, but we're also going to reference a lot of extra-biblical works. That means writings from outside of the Bible. And the reason for that is simple, because if you're making an argument for Christianity, a skeptic of Christianity doesn't want to hear what the Bible has to say. Uh, we're going to address that topic uh, later, uh, uh, one of these coming weeks, on the reliability of Scripture, but that's going to be another week. Today, we're going to begin just by getting down to the heart of it all, and we're going to look at Jesus himself, the historical Jesus. We're going to look at the evidence for the historical existence of Jesus, the historical crucifixion of Jesus, in some of his claims, because uh, all of these you might hear a skeptic call into question. And as ridiculous as it seems, uh, you might hear people that are hostile towards the Christian faith that just question the very existence of Jesus. Did he ever actually exist? Uh, and in fact, uh, Bertrand Russell, 
He was a British philosopher. He was a brilliant mathematician, and he died in 1970. But he is one of the most referenced philosophers in all of atheist circles. And he said this, historically, it is quite doubtful whether Christ ever existed at all. Uh, another man by the name of Albert Schweitzer was a French-German physician, a theologian, and a philosopher. He died in 1965, and he said this. I have it on the screen. He said, The Jesus of Nazareth, who came forward as the Messiah, who preached the ethic of the kingdom of God, who founded the kingdom of heaven upon the earth, and died to give his work its final consecration, never had any existence. He is a figure designed by rationalism, endowed with life by liberalism, and clothed, clothed by modern theology in historical garbs. Uh, so um, if someone really smart sounding comes to you and they start naming off these uh, physicians and theologians and philosophers who said these things, what is our response going to be? Because they're not going to listen if you say, well, the Bible says this. So this is actually not a super common argument uh, because anyone who does a little bit of research, a little bit of homework, can dismantle it pretty easily. But if you hear this argument, uh, to be frank, it's probably simply because it's the laziest argument there is. Uh, people will simply say that uh, Jesus never existed, according to these philosophers, and I know their name. And uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about our response to that, to that through a historical lens. So again, I'm not going to use a lot of scripture to refute this specific argument simply because an atheist won't concede the use of scripture. I'm not going to use all of the writings of the early church fathers for the same reason, even though there are a, a whole lot of them. And in fact, most of the extra biblical writings that we're going to look at, they weren't people who were even neutral to the church. They were actually in opposition to the church. They, they hated the church. They simply didn't foresee a day when people would deny that Jesus existed. So they never knew that their writings would be used for this purpose. Ah, got them. But in these writings, we're in, in a sense, we're going to kill three birds with one stone. Because not only do we find the, that these writings are evidence for the historical existence of Jesus, but they're also, also historical references for his death by crucifixion. And it's also historical evidence to show that he was believed to be God and worshipped as such, from a very short time after his death. And that specifically is very important because there is a certain religion that goes door to door that's probably been at your door. And part of what they contend, the Jehovah's Witnesses, part of what they contend is that the idea that Jesus was a deity to be worshiped was something that developed hundreds of years after his death. Uh, the, the idea that, that he was to be worshiped, the Bible was, can you turn me up louder? Uh, I'm getting thumbs up. I'm either doing a great job or I need to be louder. I'm not sure, but we'll go louder. The idea that uh, they, they had the idea that the Bible was altered over hundreds of years. So uh, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that as well as Muslims uh, are two groups who teach this. And they believe uh, that the, the notion that Jesus is God is a legend that developed over hundreds of years. Uh, and the, the problem with this argument is what I just said. Legends take hundreds of years to develop, usually several hundred years. And all of the writings that we're about to look at date to within about 100 years of Jesus' birth, some a lot earlier than that. 
uh, and this is far too soon for a legend, an inaccurate legend to form. So we're going to dive into those sources. Uh, I mentioned earlier that Peter wrote his letter uh, just before the Christians went into to a season of full-on persecution under the emperor Nero. Nero's persecution of the Christians, it's well documented. His brutality towards Christians, it's well documented. Uh, he publicly executed Christians who refused to uh, renounce their faith. He would have them torn apart by animals. He would have them crucified. And in other instances, he would have them burned alive and used as human torches to light his gardens. Uh, he was brutal towards the Christian faith, and this persecution began in 64 AD. It was about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. But during his reign, there was a Roman sinner named Tacitus, uh, Cornelius Tacitus, and he began recording the events that were taking place. Tacitus was born about 20 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. In Rome, they have kept records a lot better than anywhere else. So we actually have manuscripts of these very, very early writings. Um, but Tacitus specifically is referred to as the greatest historian of ancient Rome. And in his final work, it's called Annals, it was written in 116 AD. He writes of how it was suspected that Nero started a fire in Rome. Uh, it was suspected that Nero started this fire uh, because he wanted to carry out a building project. So this is in Tacitus' writings. Uh, again, it's just a few decades after Christ. He says, neither human effort nor the emperor's, uh, or this is Tacitus' writings, neither human effort nor the emperor's generosity nor the placating of the gods ended the scandalous belief that the fire had been ordered by Nero. Therefore, to suppress the rumor, he falsely charged with the guilt and punished with the most exquisite tortures the persons commonly called Christians who were hated for their enormities. That's a word that means their evilness. Christus uh, is the founder of the name. He was put to death by Pontius Pilate, the procurator of Judah in the reign of Tiberius. But the pernicious superstition repressed for a time, a lot of people think he's talking about the time that Jesus was in the tomb here, repressed for a time, broke out again, not only through Judea, where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also. So unknowingly, what he does in his writings is first he confirms the existence of Jesus, second he confirms his death, and what he actually does is he validates scripture because he says that it happened during the reign of Tiberius and under Pontius Pilate, which is exactly what Luke writes in chapter 3, verse 1. So uh, another ancient historian is one we mentioned last week. His name was Flavius Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian, but he was not a Christian. He lived in and he worked for Rome. He was born around 37 AD. Now this is like two or three years after Jesus' death, he was born. He wrote this. Now there was a, about this time Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was believed to be the Christ, and when Pilate at the suggestion of principal men among us, had him condemned to the cross. Those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day. So again, though Josephus is not pushing an agenda, though he's not a Christian, he refers both to Jesus and to the crucifixion that took place. 
Two more very quick examples. Uh, there was a Greek philosopher named Lucian of Samosata. He was born in AD 125, so this is less than 100 years after the death of Christ. And he was famous for his cynical writings of all religious practices and uh, the Christians included. And he said this, The Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguished person who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. You see, these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time. In other words, they're eternal, which explains their contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion, which are so common among them. And then it was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers from the moment they are converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. This is important because it shows not only Jesus the person, not only his crucifixion that took place, but it also tells us immediately after his death, he was being worshipped. So all of these arguments that you hear from Jehovah's Witnesses, from the Muslims that say, hey, this is a legend that developed over hundreds of years. No, we don't even have to use the Bible. We can use historical documents and say, no, we know based on Roman historians who had nothing to gain from this that Jesus was worshipped immediately after his death. Now, one of the things that you'll notice he referenced here is that they had essentially an indifference towards death. And that's evident, again, in one of the, the writings of one more man I want to show you uh, in history. His name is Pliny the Younger. He was the governor of a Roman province, Bithynia, in A.D. 112. And we have his writings in which he uh, appealed to the emperor Trajan. And the reason he appealed to the emperor is very, very interesting. It's because he was putting so many Christians to death that he wanted to know if he should let certain ones live. Like, should I only kill them if they're doing this? Because he was just killing all of the Christians. And he says in the letter that, that he gives the Christians the option to curse Christ and live or to refuse to curse him and die. And he says this in his letter. They affirmed, however, that the whole of their guilt, of their error, in other words, they said all they did want wrong was that they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. And when they sang an alternate verse, a hymn to Christ as a God, and bound themselves to a solid oath not to do any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, adultery, never to falsify their word, not to deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it. So again, he says right after the death of Christ, just a few years later, they are worshiping him as God. Okay, so that is just a, a few of the, the many, many historical references that we have to Jesus that prove uh, that he was a literal being, that Jesus lived historically, that Jesus was crucified historically, and that Jesus was worshipped historically. So while you're, you'll, you'll hear the occasional argument against any of these three, the majority of what you would call scholarly atheists, they don't use these arguments anymore. They conceded all this because we have just overwhelming evidence. So they said, okay, you're right, Jesus did live, he was crucified, uh, and he was worshipped. So what's next in the argument that you might hear? They'll say, but Jesus never directly declared himself to be God. Uh, this is another Jehovah's Witness argument. Uh, but the problem is you have to really distort scripture to come to that conclusion. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I and the Father are one, a word meaning one essence or one nature. 
And again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? And they replied, we are not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. They recognized in his claims he was claiming to be God. In John 5, 17, we have the same thing. Uh, where Jesus makes himself equal with God. In John 8, 58, Jesus says, Before Abraham was born, I am. We know that that was a claim to, to deity because they picked up stones again to stone him. So not only, uh, and in John 14, he says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. But it's not just his words, it's also his actions because Jesus, the Bible tells us, re he received worship that was reserved only for God. He does this in Matthew 8, Matthew 14, John 9, and John 20. And the significance of this uh, is, for instance, in Acts chapter 10. A man named Cornelius comes up to Peter, and he falls at his feet and worships him. And Peter says, get up, don't worship me, I'm just a man. In Revelation 19, John falls at the feet of an angel and begins worshiping. And the angel says to him, get up, I'm just a fellow servant of Jesus. In Jewish culture, only God was worshipped, and everyone knew this. The very fact that Jesus received worship is evidence that Jesus knew who he was, that he was claiming and proclaiming himself to be God. So the, the next question, if he believed he was God, the logical question is, was he right? Now, for the sake of time, I'm just going to offer you uh, the most compelling, compelling evidence that we have uh, historically, and that is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Uh, now, what, what, from what I could find in, in my studies this week, the Bible is the only religious book containing any predictive prophecy. There are more than 300 messianic prophecies. They were written hundreds of years before Jesus was born, and he fulfilled them all. Outside of the prof prophecies that will be fulfilled in the end of times, He's already fulfilled every one of them. There are none he didn't fulfill. So there are three arguments that a skeptic, skeptic will make against the, the prophetic fulfillments. First, they'll say, well, he intentionally fulfilled them. He read the Bible. He read the Old Testament where it said that he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. So he went and got a donkey and he rode into Jerusalem. Now, the problem with this argument is so many of the prophetic fulfillments are way out of his hands. It was prophesied that he would be a descendant of David, born in Bethlehem, preceded by a messenger, John the Baptist, betrayed by a friend, sold for 30 pieces of silver. His hands and his feet would be pierced. He would be executed alongside criminals. His garments would be torn in two and lots cast for them. And he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. How can he control any of these things? Now, all of these prophecies of the coming Messiah are told hundreds of years before his birth, and they are all fulfilled only by one man, all impossible for a human to cause himself to fulfill. So the next argument you'll hear is that the prophecies must have been written after Jesus lived. This argument is simply because apart from God, the, the prophecies are impossible. And that's kind of the point. Apart from God, these prophecies are impossible. So if you take Isaiah 53, 5, for instance, it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Uh, skeptics will say this is too specific, so it can't be true. It must have been written later and added in. So here's the first problem to this. The first problem is the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, and it is dated to the 3rd century B.C., in other words, the Old Testament was already being translated into another language over 200 years before Jesus was born. So what you'll hear next is, well, the prophecies were added later. The books were there, but the prophecies were added. And that doesn't work either because there was a 1946 discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The, the Dead Sea Scrolls are 15,000 fragments of 850 scrolls from ancient Judaism. And in those scrolls, we discovered the oldest biblical documents that we have. The oldest of those is called the Isaiah scroll. And in fact, it's uh, over a thousand years older than anything else we had to that point. The Isaiah scroll is uh, dated to around 100 BC. Uh, more than 100 years before Christ, we have a document dated that far back. And what do we find when we compare the Isaiah scroll to what we have in our Bible today, we, we find that it is 95% exactly the same. And of that 5%, it's scribal errors uh, almost exclusively. In other words, misspelled words or words in the wrong order. There's nothing that changes the message of Isaiah, and there's nothing that changes the prophecies of Isaiah. So what's the third argument? If we're saying that the, the, the prophecies were written before Christ, nothing was added, nothing was edited, the third argument is it's all a giant coincidence. It must just be a coincidence, and Jesus recognized that he fulfilled so many prophecies that he decided to claim that he was God. Um, there's a man named Peter Stoner. Uh, Peter Stoner is the author of a book called Science Speaks, uh, and he's known for a lot of the, the mathematical uh, calculations he does. And he calculated the mathematical probability of the biblical prophecies being fulfilled by chance. Uh, and his conclusion was reviewed by the American Scientific Affiliation, and they found it to be dependable and accurate in regards to, to the material that he presented. So uh, remember, Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies written hundreds of years before his birth. Stoner took eight of them, eight prophecies, uh, um, unique ones such as his place of birth and his manner of death. And he found that the odds of just eight of these prophecies being fulfilled by one man is one in 10 to the 17th power. I think I have that number. I don't know how to pronounce that number, but that's it. So he said, to, to, to give you an idea of the odds of this, You can take a, a silver dollar, and if you lay a silver dollar on the ground in Pennsylvania, and you begin laying them next to each other until you cover the entire face of Pennsylvania, so from Philadelphia to Scranton to Pittsburgh to Erie, everywhere is covered with silver dollars. And then you take another one, and you put it on top, and you do the same thing again. And then you take another one, and you put it on top, and you do that until you're 12 feet deep. So cover the surface of Pennsylvania, including waters, with silver dollars side by side until you're 12 feet deep, 46,000 square miles. And then mark one of those quarters 
and send someone in blindly and tell them, go throughout Pennsylvania and choose one quarter. The odds of that person choosing in the entire state of Pennsylvania, 46,000 miles, 12 feet deep, that marked quarter is the exact same odds as one person coincidentally fulfilling eight of the 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. So he raised the number to 48 prophecies, and he said, what about 48 of the prophecies? And he came up with this number, 1 in 10 to the 157th power, 157 zeros behind that. In other words, Brian, you can come up. In other words, it is mathematically impossible that anyone could fulfill the prophecies of Scripture. Mathematically impossible. But do you know what the Bible says? With God. All things are possible. So the last question that you would ask here would be, okay, does this make him God? Well, what you would have to do is you would have to say, he magically fulfills more than 300 prophecies, but not a couple of them. So Isaiah 9, 6, for instance, says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. For you to believe the, the prophetic words of Scripture and deny that Jesus is God is to say, okay, one in hundred, you know, 157 zeros, that's the odds of him being God, but you're going to say, but he doesn't fulfill this one? He fulfills everything else in Scripture? You, you can't make a logical argument to say that, that it's not a God thing. You can stand with me, church. I want you to recognize that we don't live in a blind faith. Historically, apart from the Bible, we can, we can say conclusively, Jesus lived, Jesus died on the cross, Jesus fulfilled the messianic prophecies, and it had to be a God thing. There's no other way of, uh, of understanding this other than it had to be God. We didn't even get into the historical evidence for the resurrection because that was going to go another half hour. But it takes faith at times to, to live for God and to follow the Holy Spirit. It doesn't take as much faith as you believe, just to, as you think, just to believe. Because everything points to it being true. Father, I pray this morning that, that our faith would be strengthened in you. And that our willingness, Lord, to, to share your word, to share your gospel, would grow, Lord, that we would be emboldened.
pray as we leave this place today that we leave with your presence and your peace. Again, Lord, with our faith strengthened. In Jesus' name. So um, we're gonna we're gonna go church today. I'm gonna I'm gonna welcome you. Uh, as we end the service, if, if you have a, a question related to this field, because we're going to be in it for at least four more weeks, if not longer, uh, and I, I've been talking uh, to some, some atheists that I know, very, very intellectual, that are throwing some tough questions. If you have tough questions that you just don't know the answer to, uh, let me know, and I'll, I'm going to do my best just to talk about the defense of the Christian faith, okay? All right. Have a good week, church. I don't know if the Steelers play today. They'll probably lose. But have a good week. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's message. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for a new message every single week. And as always, from all of us at Cranberry Community Church, may God bless you.